God, you are our redeemer, our rock, our refuge. We look to you as the one who gives us life, who made us. And God, we know that after making us, we turned away from you. We tried to run our own way. But God, in your love and your mercy, you came after us. You sent your son Jesus to live and die and rise so that we might know you. And so God, we, we just want to pour our heart out to you this morning and declare to you that you're our only hope. You are the God that we look to for life, for salvation, for refuge, for security. God, we want to find everything we need in you. Lord, we want a taste of your goodness. As we open your word this morning, God, we acknowledge that there is no other place that we find life but in your word. And so we humbly bow, asking that you would speak to us, make yourself known to us, reveal your good heart to us. God, we want to learn this morning to fear you, to walk in your ways, to see your wisdom, to have fellowship with you. So we ask, God, would you meet us here? Would you meet us here? Speak to us, transform us, and reorient us around your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we worship and pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, as you're taking your seat, I want to just invite you to go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7 if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there are Bibles in the back. Feel free to have one. If you need a Bible, you can have that as our gift to you. Uh, we're going to be there in Matthew chapter 7 that you've already heard read. Matthew 7, 13 to 23. <clears throat> uh, the big question that Jesus draws us to in his word this morning is this. What is the difference between those who will spend eternity in heaven and those who will spend eternity in hell? That's where Jesus is taking us this morning in Matthew chapter 7. So how would you answer that question? What is the difference between those who will be spending eternity in heaven and those who will be spending eternity in hell? If we had two groups of people, and, and this group over here was going to be spending their eternity in heaven, and then we had another group over here that's going to be spend their, spending their eternity in hell, what would be the difference between these two groups. Both groups are sinful. Both groups deserve hell. Both groups stand helplessly in need of salvation. So what's the difference? The group who will spend eternity in heaven will be those 
who were united to Christ. And the group who will spend eternity in hell will be those who were separated from Christ. So if we could sum it up in one phrase, it would be this, union with Christ. That's the difference. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about a number of different images that describe union with Christ. But one of my favorite images for union with Christ is the image of baptism. To be baptized, that word baptized simply means to immerse. So what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be someone who knows Jesus, is to be someone who is immersed in Jesus. Someone who's clothed in Jesus. Someone who has been totally captured by Jesus. Uh, if, if, If I were to be immersed in a big old bucket of blue paint, and then I were to come up out of that big old bucket of blue paint, my hair would be blue, my skin would be blue, there would be blue coming out of my nose, everything I touched would be blue, everywhere I walked there would be little blue footprints everywhere I went. That is the profound picture of baptism. That to go down into Jesus, to be clothed in Jesus, is to be immersed in Jesus. So we've got our two groups. This group who's going to be spending eternity in heaven and this group who's going to be spending eternity in hell. What is the difference? Here's what Jesus is going to show us this morning. The difference is this. One group has been immersed into him. One group is united to him. One group is clothed in him. One group has been captured by Jesus. The other group is separated from Jesus, distant from Jesus. As we work through our passage this morning, we want to keep these two groups in our mind. And here's what we're going to see. Jesus is going to paint a stark contrast between these two groups. So first this morning, from Matthew chapter 7, 13 to 23. First, those who are not united to Christ will enter the wide gate. But those who are united to Christ will enter the narrow gate. Verse 13 there in Matthew chapter 7 says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. What does Jesus mean by this wide gate? Well, it connects back to what we were talking about last week. The wide gate is the approach to life where I remain on the throne of my life. In other words, the wide gate is the life where I am at the center of my universe and where I sit in the driver's seat of my own life. That is what it means to enter by the wide gate. Uh, Maybe you've heard the story uh, about the monkey and the banana. That one way to capture a monkey 
is to put a banana down into a jar where down at the bottom of the jar, it's, it's wide, but at the top of the jar is a tight, narrow passageway. So the monkey goes up and it puts its hand in to grab the banana, but when it closes its fist, it can no longer pull its hand up out of the jar. The, the way is too narrow. And that's a great little illustration for what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that the reason that the way is wide that leads to destruction is because in that way, you don't have to give up anything. You're in charge. You can go at it your own way, and whatever you want to take with you, whatever you want to do, whoever you want to be, that's up to you. But the narrow gate, the narrow way, it requires letting go. It requires giving up control. Uh, but let's get more specific for a second. Why does Jesus describe this as the wide gate? Well, here's one of the reasons that Jesus describes this as the wide gate. The reason it's such a wide gate is because there are so many different ways to live with ourselves on the throne. Here's what we have to remember this morning. There will be both rebellious people who turned away from God who enter by the wide gate, but there will also be many, many religious people who enter by the wide gate. There will be people who are politically conservative and people who are politically liberal. There will be people who have lots and lots and lots of money, and there will be people who are dirt poor. There's so many ways to live with ourselves in the driver's seat. It's a wide gate. And you and I must pay uh, extra careful attention to this because we live in the United States of America. This is the land of the wide gate. This is the land of freedom. This is the land of you be who you want to be. That it's up to you to take control of your life, to take control of your choices, to have control over your own body, to have control over your possessions. And this has been epitomized, I think, uh, from a religious standpoint, in something like what we see in the Jefferson Bible. Uh, we've all heard of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson created his own Bible. Uh, he, he took the Bible, he took uh, the four Gospels, and he took out his pair of scissors, and he started chopping. Anything that had to do with miracles, chopped out. The resurrection of Jesus, chopped out. Anything that portrayed Jesus as God, chopped out. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to be in control. He didn't want to enter by the narrow gate. He liked some things that Jesus had to say. He liked some things that Jesus did. But he wanted to be on the throne of his own life. And while that might sound a little bit absurd for somebody to take out their scissors and start chopping up their Bible, guys, we do the same thing. We know that the way is narrow, and so we just think maybe at this point, this one little point in the Bible that I just don't really like, maybe I can just push the way out just a little bit. Maybe I can just widen the way just a little bit, just a hair. You know, it's like that monkey with the banana. If I could just get a little bit of a wider rim, then I could have it my way. Does the Bible really teach that the only way to know God is by faith in Jesus? Does the Bible really teach 
that God cares what I do in my private sexual life? Does the Bible really teach that God must be my top priority even over my family and my own kids? As we're talking about soberly this morning, does the Bible really say that many people will spend eternity in hell? We widen it out. Push it, we push it wider. But see, to, to take the narrow way and to attempt to widen it is just one more way to enter the wide gate. So those united to Christ, not united to Christ, will enter the wide gate, but those who are united to Christ will enter the narrow gate. Why does Jesus describe it as a narrow gate? Why does Jesus describe this as the narrow gate? Here's why. Because Jesus is king, and it's his gate. And he determines what it takes to go in and out of it. And this brings us back to the image of union with Christ. One of the things that it means to be united to Jesus is that he becomes our king and we become his citizens. If you're somebody who's not a citizen of this country and you want to become a citizen of this country, guess what you have to do? You have to be willing to let go of some things and you have to be willing to take on some things. You have to pass a test. You have to pledge allegiance. You have to say, I'm giving away some of the old rights that I used to have when I belonged as a citizen of that place. And it's the same thing for Jesus. When we come into his kingdom, the banner over the kingdom of Jesus is life. But we come on his terms, not our own. We come through the narrow gate as he determines it. Now, Jesus doesn't just tell us that the the gate to destruction is wide. He also says in verse 13 that the way is easy. That the way is easy that leads to destruction. And so second this morning, those who are not united to Christ will walk an easy road. But those who are united to Christ will walk a hard road. What does this easy road look like? If you've been tracking with us through the Sermon on the Mount, really this is what Jesus has been doing throughout this whole sermon. He's been showing us what the easy way looks like and what the hard way looks like. What the easy road looks like and what the hard road looks like. And that's why I'm so thankful. Pastor Ray Ortland, uh, he actually goes back and he takes the beginning, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, where Jesus lists out the characteristics of, of the citizens of his kingdom and the blessings that come uh, for the citizens of his kingdom, Pastor Ray Ortland takes those and he inverts them. So here's how Pastor Ray Ortland describes the easy road, the easy way. He says, Blessed are the entitled, for they get their way. Blessed are the carefree, for they are comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they win. Blessed are the self-righteous, for they need nothing. Blessed are the vengeful, for they will be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they get in the last word. Blessed are the winners, for they get their way. And if we were to go back and work through this whole 
Sermon on the Mount, we would easily see what the easy way is. The easy way is the way of life where you and I still exist on the throne. It's the way of anger. It's the way of lust. It's the way of retaliation. It's the way of the love of money. It's the way of self-promotion. It's the way of judging others. Guys, those things are easy. They come naturally to us. We don't have to work hard at being angry. We don't have to work hard at lust. We don't have to work hard at judging other people. No, those things are the default. Here's the thing about the easy way. feels easy. It feels right. It feels natural. It comes so easily. But Jesus says, that way leads to destruction. I've learned a lot from my father-in-law over the years, but uh, one of the things he said to me a few years ago really stuck with me. I, uh, Allie and I were making a decision about buying something and uh, we were going through this process of trying to figure it out, and, and we decided that we thought it would be the, you know, the, the easy thing to do to, to go with the cheapest option, you know, to kind of cut the corner and, and go, the, go the easy route. And so we bought the, the, the cheapest thing, the, 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 the least expensive thing, and this is what ended up happening. That cheap thing that felt so easy to spend a little bit of money on at the beginning, it broke. And then we ended up having to double pay, and we ended up having to double pay on the more expensive thing. And my father-in-law, I'll never forget, he looked at me and said, Jeff said, Morgan, in life, I've learned that you always get what you pay for. You always get what you pay for. Jesus, this morning, he's looking at us. He's saying, guys, I know that way looks easy. I know it looks like you're cutting the corner on life. I know it looks like you're beating the system. But the way of life where self is on the throne, where we remain in charge, where we sit in the driver's seat, it always leads to destruction. Think about these things. Anger, lust, retaliation, judging other people, the love of money. These are things that not only lead to destruction because we'll be judged for them one day. No, no, no. They lead to destruction right now in the everyday, not only in our lives, but in everybody else's life all around us. The easy way seems easy, but in the end, we'll always have to double pay. So those not united to Christ will walk an easy road, but those who are united to Christ will walk a hard road. Why does Jesus call it a hard road? Well, it's hard because it takes humility. It's hard because it crucifies self. But here's the main reason it's hard. The main reason it's hard is because it follows the path of Jesus. And this brings us back to the picture of being united with Christ. To be immersed into Jesus is not only to be clothed in his righteousness, it's not only to receive his perfect record, as we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Those things do come with being united to Christ. But what else it means to be united with Christ is that his path, his pattern becomes ours. In other words, what it means to be united with Christ is to have Jesus as our pioneer, 
He leads the way and we follow. And yes, Jesus is saying, as your pioneer, yes, the way is hard. Why is it hard? Because my life is hard. Jesus is saying, if it's hard for me, it's going to be hard for you. But here's the deal. I am leading you to life. I have a hard way, but that way is the way out of destruction to life. So we do need to be honest about the hardness of the road. We do need to look the difficulty of what it means to follow Jesus in the face and count the cost. But here's what we need to do more than that. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. And here's why. When we look at the life of Jesus, when we look at the path, the pattern of Jesus, we do see death. But here's what else we see. We see the triumph of resurrection life. When we look at Jesus, we do need to see the suffering. But here's what else we see when we look at Jesus. We see the glory that is just on the other side. It is keeping our eyes on Jesus that is the way to life. Now, there's one final thing we need to notice from verses 13 to 14. So third this morning, those who are not united to Christ will be many, will be many. But those who are united to Christ will be few. Why does this detail matter? It, does Jesus want us to sort of engage in some sort of speculation where we try to figure out who's in, who's out? No. No, Jesus is looking at us. He's looking at us. And he's saying, the goal of your life is not to find yourself in the majority. The goal of your life is not to become popular. The goal of your life and my life is not to be in. But many, many, many have continued on the way of destruction because deep down they desperately desired more than anything else to always be in. Those who are not united to Christ will be many, but those who are united to Christ will be few. Verse 14, I want you to see it in verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Uh, growing up, I attended a summer camp, and uh, at this summer camp, a lot like many other summer camps, there, there's this kind of this ranking system that as you got older and as you kind of proved yourself in different ways, you, you would move up in the ranks, and then when you finally got to a certain place where you move yourself up to a, a point, point in the ranks, you were given the opportunity to take a test. This test is very difficult. The test includes being able to make a fire and keep it going for a certain, certain number of hours. It includes running up a mountain. Uh, it includes an essay that you have to write. And the whole thing, 18 hours long, you're not allowed to make one verbal noise. This is a difficult test. And statistically speaking, most of the boys at this camp fail the test. Even after two, three, four attempts, most campers graduate out never having passed this test. So here's what we have to ask. Is that what Jesus is saying about Christianity? Is he saying, all right, here, here's your two groups. 
Here's your group of people that are going to spend eternity in heaven, and here's your group of people that are going to spend eternity in hell. And basically, the group of people that are going to spend eternity in heaven, they're the ones who were a little bit better than everybody else, who, who did a few more good things than everybody else, who tried a little bit harder than everybody else, and because they were a little smarter and a little bit more capable, uh, they, they passed the test, and they're the select few that are going to make it in. And then you got all these other people here, and they were just the dropouts. You know, they just couldn't quite get it together. They just made a few too many bad decisions, and they're the ones who are, who are out. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what he means by the many and the few? No. No. Jesus is not saying there will be few because there will be so few who were so capable or so few who were so good. Jesus is saying there will be so few because there will be so few who are willing to lay down their crown, to get off of their throne, and to cry out to Jesus for mercy. To humble themselves in the dust and to say, I can't do this. I need someone else on the throne. I need another king greater than myself to rule my life. And Jesus is saying, the reason there will be so few, it won't be based on ability. It will be because of pride. As Jesus flows into the next section, in verse 15, he begins with the word, beware. Beware. And so forth this morning, those who are not united to Christ will listen to false prophets. But those who are united to Christ will listen to Jesus. Verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Here's what, what I imagine. I imagine Jesus wants us to envision ourselves standing before the wide gate and before the narrow gate, before the easy road and before the hard road. And he wants us to envision that there are people there who seem credible, who seem to have our best interests at heart, and they are just encouraging us towards the wide gate. They are encouraging us down the easy road. Who wouldn't want the easy road? Who wouldn't want the wide gate? Why don't you go that way? And Jesus is saying, beware. Beware. There's going to be people who are going to try to get you to go the way, the way of anger, the way of lust, the way of the love of money the way of judging other people, the way of self-promotion. There are going to be people who are going to be encouraging us in that direction. What does Jesus mean when he talks about this sheep's clothing, wolves in sheep's clothing? Well, I think at least it means two things. See, there are religious false prophets whose sheep's clothing, whose sheep's clothing is that they say just enough of the truth to seem credible. They say just enough of what's actually in the Bible so that we trust them. But in reality, they are ravenous wolves because they intentionally withhold vital life or death truths 
that are a matter of our eternal destiny. And they intentionally withhold it. They say some nice things. They say some true things. And it's sheep's clothing. But then there are non-religious false prophets as well, whose sheep's clothing is simply, they appeal to our selfishness. They are the cheerleaders of our flesh. Yes, you do deserve a better life. Yes, you do deserve the easy way. Yes, you can make something better of yourself. Here's this wide gate. Here's this easy road. Go for it. And they entice us, appealing to our selfishness. They know. They know how susceptible we are to the self, to self-centeredness, to self-righteousness. And they lure us. So how do we know who these false prophets are? Jesus gives us a vivid illustration in order to help us beware, beware, beware. He continues in verses 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, 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 Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is saying, hey, step back for a second. Step back from what you're hearing. Step back from the messages and actually assess the person's life. Do you see the fruit of God's Spirit in them? Can you go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 and begin to ask these questions? Are they poor in spirit? Do they mourn? Are they meek? Do they hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are they merciful? Are they peacemakers? Are they persecuted for righteousness' sake? Are they slandered and reviled and spoken of falsely on account of Jesus? The Lord Jesus is is, is saying to us, step back. Step back, and here's, here's here's the key. We need to up our discernment game. We are flooded with messages, flooded with voices, flooded with people telling us how to live our lives, what to do, what to prioritize, what to spend our money on, what to care about, what to think about, what to get angry about, what to lust about, what to feel self-righteous about. And Jesus is saying we need to recognize, recognize, up our discernment game. Pastor and author Mark Sayers gives us a helpful helpful thought. He says, we're in a post-Christian culture where in many ways the culture is trying to disciple us. What's he saying? Our mission at this church is to make disciples who make disciples. In other words, we want to be 
becoming more and more like Jesus and helping everybody else become more and more like Jesus. But what he's saying is that our surrounding environment has picked up on our mission and they have inverted it. That they are trying to make disciples of us. They are trying to shape our lives. They are trying to make us into their image. And so we've got to start questioning our lives. We've got to start questioning the voices that we listen to. We've got to start thinking a little harder when we listen to the news. Being a little bit more careful as we drink in our entertainment and our media. Jesus isn't saying avoid it. He's saying step into the maturity of being able to filter it. Uh, over the last few years, for different reasons, Allie and I have uh, started to take an interest in our food. Uh, what exactly are we eating? Uh, why are we eating it? What, what are the ingredients? And uh, we've begun to kind of become a little bit more um, selective, you know, uh, through, through sort of these filters that we're, we're developing. Now, I'm going to be honest. There's times when you just override the filter and you're like, I just want it. I'm just going for it. I know this is going to kill me, but it tastes delicious. But for the most part, we've gotten good at, you know, just when we're shopping, we still go to the same stores, we still eat at the same restaurants, but, you know, we just take it off and read the label and you start to assess, okay, what's actually in this? Jesus is saying, the call is not to stick your head in the sand. The call is not to become a monk and totally pull yourself out of society. No, 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 no. The call is to step into maturity where we can hear the messages, we can listen to the news, we can watch our entertainment, but we have strong filters that know what is the false prophet's voice saying, here's the wide gate, here's the easy way, don't you want it, go for it. And being able to filter out Jesus saying, I'm actually the one that knows you and loves you, and I know what you were made for. Go this way instead. Uh, here's a few filters that I, I'm trying to apply on my own life that I, I want to share with you. Three questions to think through as we listen, as we hear, as we're flooded with messages. Here's three questions that help us to filter out what's coming our way. A first question is this. Is what I'm hearing, if I listen to it and it do what's being asked of me, will God be glorified? If I run after what this person's telling me to do, will God be glorified? Here's a second question. Is what I'm being told to do, is how I'm being told to feel, is what I'm being told to buy, is what I'm being told to pursue with my life, Will it help me take up my cross and follow Jesus? Will it help me deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus? And then here's a third filter question for us. Is what I'm hearing, is what I'm being enticed to, is what I'm being allured towards, if I were to say yes, if I were to dive in, if I were to go for it, would it mean that Jesus would increase while I decrease? 
would it mean that Jesus would increase while I decrease? Beware, Jesus says, beware. So those not united to Christ will listen to false prophets, but those who are united to Christ will listen to Jesus. In John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And this presents for us another image of union with Christ. When we are united to Christ, when we are baptized into Jesus, when we are immersed into Jesus, we become his sheep, and he becomes our shepherd. He's the one who's protecting us, who's caring for us, who's saying, beware, beware, there's danger over there. Beware, beware, there's a cliff right there. Our shepherd speaks to us. We hear his voice. We follow him. And he leads us to life. Now, as Jesus continues, uh, we're going to see a few more images of union with Christ that are, that are these precious, deep realities. And so fifth this morning, those who are not united to Christ may say right things. But those who are united to Christ will do the will of the Father. Verse 21 Uh, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So this is kind of what Jesus does. He he takes this uh, illustration that he's just shared about fruit, and he's he's been applying it to the false, false prophets, false teachers. And he's saying, hey, they may be saying some of the right things, but but we should be able to discern, to recognize them by their fruit. But then Jesus turns right around and he applies that same image to every single one of us. He says, there's plenty of people who will say the right things, will say, Lord, Lord. But they'll still be on the throne of their life. They'll still be in the driver's seat. They'll still be the center of other universe. Uh, if I invited you over to my house and you asked me, hey, what can I bring over? And I said, oh man, uh, I would love to make an apple pie. Why don't you bring a bag of apples? I'm, I'm excited. I love apple pie. You're on your way. You come in and you walk in with a bushel of bananas. Say, hey, thought we talked about this. Apple pie. Asked you to bring apples. You know, what's the deal? And then if you were to point down at a sticker on all the bananas that said apples, I would probably chuckle. But then if you were to insist, no, 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 it says apples. I'll say, yeah, but it's long and skinny, it's yellow, you peel it to eat it, and it's mushy. That's a banana. You can't mix up an apple and a banana, even if you put a label on it that says apple. And Jesus is saying the same thing happens in our spiritual lives. Lord, Lord, we say the right things. But Jesus is saying we have to 
understand that it's easy to say, Lord, Lord. It's easy to say the right things. Many will say the right things. Many will say, Lord, Lord. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have a transformed heart. That we've actually gotten off the throne and invited Jesus onto the throne. So those who are not united to Christ may say right things, but those who are united to Christ will do the will of the Father. I just want to read verse 21 again so we see how clear it is. In verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So that means we talked earlier about these two groups, right? we got this one group of people over here going to heaven. we got this one group of people who are going, to, are going to hell. Jesus is saying there will be some people in this group who will have said, Jesus is my Lord. But he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And this leads us to one of the deepest realities of union with Christ. We talked about how you, the, my favorite picture of union with Christ is baptism. It means to be immersed into Jesus. It means to be consumed with Jesus. But here's the wonderful, precious truth of union with Christ. Not only does it mean that we are immersed in Him, but union with Christ means that He lives in us. We live in Him and He lives in us. And that means Jesus in us begins to produce the fruit that is consistent with the words, Lord, Lord. That no one, I want to be really clear about this, no one gets into heaven because they figured out how to do the will of the Father. But everyone who goes to heaven will be someone who has done the will of the Father. No one gets into heaven because they figured out how to do the will of the Father, but everyone who will go to heaven will be someone who, because Jesus was in them, producing real spiritual life that they actually did the will of the Father. And so Jesus wants us to examine ourselves. The image that the Bible gives for this sort of union is a vine and its branches. A vine and its branches. A branch can't support itself. The only way a branch has life is if it's lodged into the vine. And then it's the vine that gives life, that produces life, that pours life into the branch. And Jesus is saying, all those who are truly united to me, there, there will be life in them. My spirit will be leading them to do the will of my Father. And I think that leads us to one of the, one of the most, if not the apex, of what union with Christ is all about. And so six this morning. Those who are not united to Christ will trust in what they do. But those who are united to Christ will know and trust Jesus. Look at verse 22. Jesus continues. On that day, he says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? You know, the reason we get scared about a passage like this is because we don't actually understand Christianity. We say, Oh my goodness. These people, they did like amazing things. Wow, they did amazing things in Jesus' name. They prophesied in Jesus' name. They did many miracles in Jesus' name. They did many mighty works in Jesus' name. I've never done that. So the bar must be really, really high on what it means to, to get into heaven. But Jesus is saying, if that's how we feel, 
we've missed the point. We've missed the point. The whole reason that Christianity exists is because we trust in Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The problem with these people is that they haven't, not that they haven't done enough, is that they're trusting in what they have done. Their hope is in their own resume. I don't know when the last time you worked on your resume was. I would think that for some people in this room, it's probably been 30 or 40 years before, since you've looked at your resume. And there's probably some of you who, this week, you are hard fast working on that thing. What is a resume? It's this document that you know, has all of our accomplishments on it. It has all of the, the, the things that we're good at. And, and we hope that that resume will go before us and open the door and be sort of a, a representation of who we really are. And so we, we put that resume out, hoping that it will get us what we want. And Jesus is saying, hey, here's the picture of what happens. These people, they die, and they come and stand before him. And Jesus says, you're not in. And their gut reaction is to say, but Lord, didn't we do this and do this and do this and do this for you? Look at our resume. Look at all that we did in your name. And he's saying, you don't get it. That's not Christianity. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the Bible clearly says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as the result of works, that no one may boast. The only ones of us who should be frightened by this passage are those of us who still have hope in our own resume. Are those who, if we were asked before Jesus, we would start talking about all the things we've done. No, no. And so those who are not united to Christ will trust in what they do, but those who are united to Christ will know and trust Jesus. I want you to see in verse 23 what this all funnels down to. Verse 23 says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, You didn't try hard enough. Depart from me. He doesn't say, Hey, you didn't go back and fix all your mistakes and pay for all of your sins, so depart from me. He doesn't say, you weren't sorry enough for all the times you sinned against God. That's not what he says. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You never came to me. You never trusted me. You never formed a relationship with me. You never sought me. I don't know you. But this leads us to one of the most important, the apex of the images of union with Christ. When the Bible talks about our union with Christ, the highest, most beautiful image it uses is that of marriage. That what it means to be united to Christ is to be married to Jesus by faith. And what happens in a marriage? Two people who are out here separate, 
they come together, they, they form a union, and they bring all their stuff into it. All the good things they have, all the bad things they have, all the assets and all the debts, it all comes together in a union. And so we have to ask ourselves, what comes together in the marriage union with Jesus? Well, what we bring to the table is we bring our sin. We bring our death. We bring our just condemnation. And so for us to be married to Jesus, he had to take those things on himself. He willingly took our sin. He willingly took our death. He bore the just condemnation that we deserve. Why? To show us the love of a husband. To be united with us. To know us. To have a relationship with us. And what did Jesus bring into the marriage? He brought his righteousness. He brought his life. He takes what is ours, and we get what is his. This is union with Christ. But union with Christ also means, in marriage, it also means intimacy. It means relationship. It means any of us who will know Jesus in heaven will have first known him on earth. Any of us who will walk with Jesus in eternity will have walked with him in our life. And that's why finally this morning, seventh and finally, those who are not united to Christ will hear, depart from me. But those who are united to Christ will hear, welcome home. Those who are not united to Christ will have entered the wide gate, they'll have taken the easy road, they will have always shifted back and forth to make sure that they were in the majority, they will have taken in the false prophets who encouraged their selfishness, encouraged their flesh, encouraged their anger, encouraged their lust. They may even have said some of the right things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they went through life with themselves on the throne. They went through life with themselves in the driver's seat. And so Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Why is Matthew 7, 13 to 23 in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? Only because Jesus loves us. Jesus wants us to run to him. He wants us to finally admit there's nothing on my resume that could make me good enough. I keep trying so hard and it just leads to destruction. I submit to you, Jesus. I want to know you. I want to be immersed into you. That's what Jesus wants from all of us. And then finally, if those who are not united to Christ will hear, depart from me, those who are united to Christ will hear, welcome home. After entering through the narrow gate and letting go, after taking the hard road that followed the path of Jesus, that was the path of the cross, after time and time again having to feel out of the majority, having to feel out of the in crowd, after a lifetime of clinging with everything we have to the voice of our shepherd, while 
So many other voices attempted to knock us off the, the other, to the other track. After a lifetime of having to walk with Jesus by faith, we'll see our Savior face to face. And he'll say, welcome home. And I just want to say this morning, if you're wondering, you know, how do I know? How do I know which group I'm in? I mean, here's just one thought. If meeting Jesus face to face and hearing him say, welcome home, is the highest joy that you can imagine, then you're in Christ. But if meeting Jesus face to face and hearing welcome home and having him throw his arms around you, if that just seems weird, odd, foreign, you probably don't know Christ. We've been talking this morning about this image of baptism. And I just want to say, if you're here and you and you're listening, and you don't know the Lord, and you're thinking to yourself, if I stood before him, he would, he would look at me and say, I never knew you. Please, please don't leave here today. Don't leave here today without coming up and talking to us about how it is that we get immersed into Jesus. How it is that we step off of the throne of our life and welcome Jesus to take charge of our life. But then for those of us who are here today, and we've trusted in Jesus, we've been immersed in Jesus, guys, this is our privilege to live the baptized life, to live the life that follows his path, to live the life where we don't trust in our resume anymore, but we're clothed in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves now. These are weighty things. You've met us with realities that have eternal impact. You've met us this morning with realities that determine our eternal destiny. God, help us to feel the weight of it. And would the weight of it drive us to Jesus whether we know Jesus or not, God, we pray that this morning we would be driven closer to him, that we'd be driven to trust him more, that we'd be driven to enjoy union with him, both for our eternity and for every moment of our lives. God, would you work powerfully in our hearts? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.